Hello and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. Today I have with me Robert Aducci. If you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Freddie. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I've been a lifelong gamer since, uh, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s. You know, played for a long time to the early kind of 2000s and was sort of out for about 10 years and then came back. And when I came back, I uh, started doing more than just playing. I kind of started got uh, kind of got into the industry, uh, writing and Kickstarters for people and marketing work. And that's what I've been doing for the past uh, 10 years or so. Very cool. So I wanted to start a little bit further back in your personal history. Let's go back to 1995, Athos.org. Um, was that just a uh, a college-like thing that you did in your spare time? Or how did that get going? And what was that like? To take it a little bit further back, in 1991 is when Dark Sun came out. And I had just started playing D&D like a year or two before that with my game group. It just kind of ended up that like we all wanted to, to GM, like it wasn't just like one person jamming. And so everybody kind of started picking up the setting that they wanted to run because during that time, like settings were getting released every two minutes, it seems like. So I chose Dark Sun uh, and I chose Dark Sun because uh, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. And so I know the deserts very well and, and what that looks like. And most kind of standard fantasy is, you know, uh, forests and uh, uh, and mountains and things like that. And so I really didn't, you know, couldn't really envision that as well. So I really dug into Dark Sun, really loved the themes and just how it kind of threw standard fantasy on its head. I was part of like uh, the nascent internet, you know, a lot of like AOL chat rooms and stuff. That's where TSR was back in the day. They were on AOL. And then um, started getting into, you know, making your own website and stuff. And so I created, um, I created, athos.org which at then was back then was was on my uh aol account like uh i can't even remember what 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 the url was but it was just you know some generic aol account and then it's kind of moved so i call it was originally called the burnt world of athos it's actually still called that but everybody still everybody just calls it athos.org uh and then you know I, I like i said i was just kind of learning about the internet that's why that's why i started you know creating the website and um it just turned into something that was fun. And back back in the day, uh, after AOL kind of shut down, everything sort of moved to uh, mailing lists. And so it was like, you know, you would send an email to a certain address and then that would kind of distribute it to everybody. You know, people still sort of use those, but not usually in the, like there was hundreds of people that were were on it, right? And so it was a pretty good conversations kind of happening all the time. So some people wanted to like put projects together. So like every week they would, a different person would create a project and everybody would like throw, you know, people of content about that and then they would grab that content and then put it together and we called those things net projects and so i'd put those up on um on the website we also did a thing called at, uh what was it called um sands of athos which was like a kind of like a, a zine you know like every month we would put out an electric zine electronic zine i guess that just had some different content for the game and so we did that for for years so from 1995 until about 2000 when at that point tsr had been bought by Wizards of the Coast and they realized that they didn't want to keep supporting the you know all of these settings and so what they did was they they sort of asked the community so Jim Butler who is now the president of Paizo but back then he was like the the world's manager for for uh Wizards of the Coast so he went to each community for each setting and said, hey, we're going to have a vote. Which website do you want to be like the official website for your setting? 
Uh, and so I was lucky enough to have Athos.org or the Burnt World of Athos chosen as as sort of like the official website of the setting. And, um, you know, Dragonlance had it. I think the Dragonlance Nexus had it uh, for, for Dragonlance and can't remember who had it for Planescape. But, you know, everybody, you know, every setting had sort of this official designation. And what that really meant was that when third edition came out, they wanted those websites to sort of convert uh, that setting to third edition D&D. And we started doing that, you know, as uh, uh, as third edition came out, we got the rules, people, you know, we, we had a big group of people. Uh, so in Dark Sun, you have like uh, <clears throat> Templars, which in the actual setting, they're sort of like bad, you know, like the they're like the police force, whatever. But like we use that that kind of term as sort of like people that were writing for us and, and people that were project managers and we also had terms like uh, senators and, and things like that. And so all of those people we had already been writing for us doing different things. And so we just kind of moved them over to writing third edition stuff. But uh, I realized quickly that that's not what I really wanted to do. Um, just getting into the details of that sort of design at the time, I just didn't really care for it. So I sort of handed it off to uh, Flip, who used to um, have another website. And so him and the team kind of kept on uh, kind of just kept on with it as I sort of moved away from uh, from gaming for a while for a while in the early 2000s. Got it. What initially drew you to Dark Sun over all the other settings? There was I remember there was a lot, at least five like official ones in second edition, right? Yeah, there, there was a bunch during that time. Uh, like I said, it was like really the, the initial thing was the desert. Um, I really love the idea that uh, one of the things that's cool is, you know, in most regular D&D, if you just look at like t- uh, terrain, right, you've got just desert like that's all desert mountains forest whatever living in arizona and having i'm like a huge camper and backpacker and stuff like that so i've been all over this state and while it is a desert it is not just you know sand <laughs> there are mountains uh there are uh canyons there are boulder fields so like all of these different kinds of desert are, are sort of represented in dark sun like there are different desert terrains a whole bunch of different ones and there's some fantastical ones and stuff like that too but i love that i love you know the sort of ecological idea uh you know that uh you know if you use if you abuse the planet via defiling magic uh you know you're gonna destroy it and that's obviously you know something we're we're still sort of dealing with uh right now and so i love that issue uh, I love like the city states are sort of like a are, are sort of like a Bronze Age or maybe a little bit before that um, in technology, and so the sorcerer kings that run the city states are sort of like oppressive tyrants, and so there's this aspect of also like breaking up the status quo and fighting against tyranny and so like all of these things together i just i love yeah absolutely that's actually what drew me to dark sun in a lot of, in a lot of aspects was mm-hmm. some of the fact well the fact that it was completely desert based was very interesting to me and i think the traditional storylines that you can find of both the anti-tyranny storylines within dark sun are very interesting but i did like the sort of defiler and preserver storyline differences mm-hmm. and how you can sort of move towards that sort of storyline as a completely separate game than all of the other storylines and it's really like it's very different than anything else that you would find in D&D especially at that time but like mm-hmm. you know even today there there isn't a lot of those types of storylines where we're dealing with ecology and like you mm-hmm. know whether destroying the planet and like you know doing things for uh, or having like that kind of existential crisis of right. environmental issues or uh, climate or anything like that I would say about uh, Dark Sun, just in general, um, there's a lot of safety 
tools required or like conversations and like there's obviously a lot of very adult uh not mainstream topics and storylines that you can explore with dark sure mm-hmm. um did you find that any of those topics or any of those storylines um, you stayed away from? Or did you sort of embrace those things and like have open conversations with uh, your tables about them? You know, aside from just the oppression, which is sort of like standard fantasy, right? Like you've always got some sort of uh, bandits or something that are trying to oppress you up to like tyrants, right? And and so that's kind of been there. But really, the more thing that's sort of on the nose is, is slavery, right? And so um, I was just talking with this just recently about with some friends about it. I learned very so some of the original adventures make it so well, so the first adventure that you that's in the original box set um, is like you start out as slaves and then you immediately kind of pretty much get freed. So that one's not that bad. But the other several of the other adventures make it a trope like you're going to get captured, right? You're going to be put into slavery or at least captured. And I quickly realized even as a high school uh, teenager, I quickly realized that that people playing D&D hate being captured. They will do anything they can to, to not be captured. And then I just realized like it's it's really pretty stupid to capture them because they're powerful. They have spells, right? They're stronger than other people. They have magic. They've got psionics. That was another thing that's a cool part of Dark Sun is psionics. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. so and so like you it's pretty much impossible to keep a group captured. So so then there's that. So so from there, I just decided like I'm just not really using that trope anymore because it just doesn't really make sense like i would use it a little bit to sort of you know highlight something or whatever but you know that was back in the day and that was mostly just playing with my own kind of personal friends you know more recently as i've played with more uh you know more strangers i just sort of you know when it comes up uh it's always so one of the things that i've always like i've seen some documents from tsr that like you know they're they're sort of not codes of conduct, but I forget what they're called, but the they're, the way they want people to write. And like, it's always said in Dark Sun, slavery is bad. You know, nobody, no good characters will, will take part in it. It's only for evil characters. And so, you know, I've always sort of, you know, hewed to that. And, and so it's really never been that much of an issue, but, you know, I just kind of try to stay away from it. And now uh, that even, you know, there's been more and more conversation about it. Uh, it's just not even really needed. Like I, I don't even feature it unless it's just occasionally like a mention really. Yeah. I think it's one of those topics that if you want to play within dark sun, normally I think a majority of tables will end up veiling it. Like it mm-hmm. can be a part of right. the storyline, sure. but you don't want to directly interact with it and mm-hmm. like have primary uh slave storylines because that's can be you know potentially really traumatizing and or ruin an entire like you know experience at a table for a, a lot of people i know that that sort of topic probably requires for most people uh, a great deal of trust in the gm so yeah. running a game within dark sun i know that it really requires uh mm-hmm. you have these difficult conversations beforehand because that's like the first question of people mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. when they look at dark sun it's like okay and when i look at a dark sun campaign campaign and I'm about to join it like I check out the GM and I'm like hmm is this person gonna make slavery weird and like <laughs> yeah. are they gonna like insert some some really shitty storylines that mm-hmm. I don't want to participate in so yeah there's a lot of uh interesting stuff with you you mentioned uh as part of like your informal rank systems or uh your titles for some of the people on your on your team mm-hmm. senators right right in the setting I, as I recall um some of the cities do have senators and they're more or less uh, because it's structured in sort of a an autocratic slash oligarchy, right? Um, the nobility, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been mm-hmm. a while, but the nobility are set up in 
such a way to act as like public figures that uh, sort of influence the masses. And Mm -hmm. then there's no, there's not much actual um, power that they wield except in status and like some of their riches, right? Because they're normally very rich and then they help support the the autocrat at the top, the the sorcerer king um, of various or... Is there a queen in the? There are. Okay, yeah. The the source the the sorcerer uh, king or queen or Mm -hmm. um, whatever gender they might be um, within them. Um, Have you run any storylines to do with like classism or anything like that within Dark Sun that your table was on board with? I find that it sort of just ends up being the same idea as like nobility in you know in any other kind of D anD D game, right? Like so, like they have the status and they have wealth and and access to power uh, in the government. And so what usually ends up happening is like player characters, regardless of their social rank, you know, or cast or whatever, end up like uh, going beyond that just because of, again, their own personal power. And so um, I, you know, I've used, um, I've used the details, but like, again, it doesn't end up being like a big deal because they end up being someone that, um, that has the power. So for example, um, the city state of tier, that's the, the city that where the status quo is sort of broken um, in that their sorcerer king is killed pretty much right away. And so this council is made and the ca- the council has uh, senators. And like you were saying, the, some of the senators are from the nobility, some are for, from the old Templars, but then they kind of start, it starts being more democratic. And then they start getting senators from the people and the militia and all this stuff. So, um, so in my game, uh, you know, the, the PCs end up uh, kind of being the the arm of the of the Senate and like you know the special forces because they can go do whatever where the militia can't and so um, so then they end up rubbing shoulders with the nobility and Templars and everything so yeah so it, it it's sort of a part of the game in in this game specifically because it is focused on like the the city state of tier and like how they overcome uh you know basically being thrown into chaos when when the Sorcerer King dies yeah that's super cool um. Love to hear that. I um, remember a lot of storylines that I played with in Dark Sun uh, games that were really focused on politics between uh, those within the status quo. And the way that the world was generally presented to me by these storytellers was that it was always very static. So having Mm -hmm. a more dynamic environment that the party can really directly influence is, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, a lot more powerful of a story, especially for uh, people who are used to like playing D&D where they can affect the story, right? Yeah. Um, And in a setting like Dark Sun, um, being the exception and like being like a force for good is Mm -hmm. obviously pretty interesting have you ever had anybody like pursue like a defiler storyline and sort of develop into like an evil sorcerer (laughs) so again in high school uh one of my buddies he played a templar the sort of storyline was that he was sort of a not necessarily a spy but just like an agent right of an agent of the sorcerer king to sort of go out and see what was really happening in the world during that time um he befriended you know a preserver and um and a gladiator an uh an ex-slave gladiator and 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 so during that it was one of those stories of like wow like what i'm doing is really messed up you know because then they start seeing the the uh the effects of their actions as uh agents of the sorcerer kings and so the character was always 
kind of paying lip service to the Sorcerer King because he had to, um, but also was sort of like becoming, you know, like more of like a, a, a freedom fighter, basically. Radicalized. Um, yeah. 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 So, so yeah. that was a cool storyline. Dark, you often hear stories, you know, online of, of defilers and, and Templar characters. And, and I, I just don't usually allow them just because it's not like, unless somebody has, unless somebody wants to tell kind of the story that I just examine if they want to tell something along those lines then i would say sure but if they just want to be evil like that's not why i'm playing D. like i want to interesting stories about about rebellion and about trying to fix the ecology and those sorts of things like that's what i want you know what i want to play with yeah absolutely i think one of the most interesting for me um storylines that i have always been interested in since i was um a kid was because and i have tried to examine this a little bit but um on my grandfather's side um he has some indigenous in him of course i look like super Aryan, like i said mm-hmm. it looks like super blonde and everything but i never got to explore those uh that that sort of culture or anything so for mm-hmm. me one of the most interesting things that i find about dark sun is like storylines that have to do with the preserver route or some sort mm-hmm. of druidic route um mm-hmm. with indigenous people because i i don't know it's it's something that i really enjoy exploring and i and I try to do it, I suppose, um, officially, I'll say this on the pocket. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there's not a lot of places within D&D or tabletop that actually allows you to explore that kind of storyline. That's been a personal favorite for me. But yeah, so one of the other sort of um, interesting aspects of Dark Sun that you don't get with some other settings is, I forget the name of it, but basically, they based the societies of each individual city state on a real world society. Now today we probably wouldn't do that, right? Because right. you know, there's a, a bunch of you know, a bunch of problems with it. Um they sort of lean in they leaned into it uh kind of in the second edition stuff but in fourth edition when they kind of rewrote it you know the, the you can still see the details but they don't sort of specifically say you know and so they they try to sort of get away from it uh the specific cultures while still sort of basing it on that um there is a supplement called slave tribes and so that you know today oh, would, would, oh. would would not fly um and and we were literally just talking about this last night and i was saying like you know if you look at the book the first chapter is about like, what does slavery look like in Dark Sun? And then the rest of them are about all these tribes and and ostensibly they're slave tribes, but not really, they're ex-slave tribes. As I was talking to some of my friends, I'm like, that's, you know, even even kind of talking about it in that direction is uh, doesn't make sense because it doesn't go along with all those other tropes that we're talking about, right? Like if you're talking about freedom and you're talking about um, throwing off uh, tyrants, you would maybe call the book free tribes or something like that. But even that, like people that are enslaved and then then become free are not going to call themselves slave tribes. They're going to call themselves whatever tribes they were. And even if like their tribe was wiped out as a result of being enslaved, they're going to either make their own tribe or they're, you know, they're going to do something else and they're not going to reference their time being enslaved. Like that's not, you know, they're, they're not identifying as slaves. So identifying them in that manner would be kind of a term of the oppressor. Right. And so, um, so we were talking about it, like maybe there, there would be ways to kind of talk about, about indentured or bonded servitude in some way, because before, you know, before the American system, you know, it wasn't just about race, it was about lots of other things. And so if you can kind of focus on those things, you know, maybe there's room to to do that if people want to do that, you know, Um, because you can look at people came from Europe to America, sometimes they were indentured, that means like they gave up so many years of their life, 
um, in exchange for being brought here. So like that could be something, right? That's some aspect of it, or it could be, you know, used as a, a, a penalty for, for crime or, or a penalty for being overtaken um, for some period of time. Like it's not necessarily just like you're born that way and that's the way you are forever. You know, you're born into this. And so the, there are some more nuanced um, possibilities, I guess, if somebody would want to, you know, somebody has a lot of history in that and wants to kind of take on that. I think somebody could do that. But right now it would be difficult. Yeah, it is definitely um, one of the rightfully so like sensitive topics sure. that you would want to avoid just for general play. Like if you don't know these players, you haven't played with them before, you don't have mm-hmm. consent, we haven't like decided that this is the ex- the sort of story that we want to explore. I would say with a storyline like that, normally, um, if I had a player who wanted to uh, do that, first of it would have to be a player that I know, liked, and trusted. And then also mm-hmm. I would have to get clearance from the rest of the table because even being an observer to a story like that might be like, you know, really not fun for other people to participate in. Yeah, um, and I'm not even talking about like direct storylines for the characters. I'm just talking about like mentioning it in the game, right? Like I feel like, you know, if there was an NPC that was a slave or whatever that was enslaved, it's it's different to just say this person is enslaved and then the, everybody have the idea of like they're enslaved for the rest of their life or they were born to it as opposed to this person is an indentured servant to somebody and like it just has a different feel right like the way you talk about it and so like i said i think there could be some you know if people wanted to explore that people wanted to to talk about that because that's one of the big things right when people talk about uh especially now of like creating dark sun for fifth edition so you know there's a, a a some portion of of people that are like, well, they would, you know, Wizards of the Coast is never going to do it because they're too woke. And so they're never going to include slavery when it's like, okay, well, maybe, but maybe, maybe there are other ways to, to, to kind of soften it, you know, or not. One of the storylines that uh, I had pursued uh, at my table, more or less, was in, in some of the, in our history with like some indigenous people within the America, like the America, like North America, sometimes uh, Native Americans, uh, indigenous people would uh, capture and have indentured servitudes from other tribes, right? Yep, yep. And that has been, that was a very interesting topic for me to sort of explore because when I played indigenous uh, people, like you would have, like for instance, like a um, a water elementalist or someone like that, like a mage mm-hmm. that would serve so many uh, years with a uh, a different uh, tribe, and then you would have that sort of represented in a meaningful way, as opposed mm-hmm. in like in a cultural way, as opposed to something that was just you know them working. Or something like that, them Them having, yeah, exactly, Mm -hmm. having a place in their society Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. represent um, something to do with their culture. I remember playing like a a water elementalist who um, became an indentured person for a different tribe who worshipped the sun. So Mm -hmm. they would have a place within that society because they personally did not do want to do anything with like water magic or water associated magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that character still had unique and interesting interactions with the rest of the tribe. Totally. And, and, you know, there's a lot of evidence of, you know, people after they are captured and um, are in that sort of position becoming members of the tribe. You know, there are other ways and other aspects to deal with it. Yeah. 
talking about adventure league content and like you being the community manager when did you start getting uh into writing for adventures league and i believe this is how you got back into like the community and like the profession again right sort of uh actually just before that um what got me back in is in like 2009 they maybe 2008 fourth edition came out really didn't pay much attention to it but then 2009 they started announcing that uh they were doing dark sun for fourth edition <laughs> so that's that's what pulled me back in so um i started listening to tons of podcasts the tome show podcast which is still out there uh um i started listening to all their their podcasts about dark sun and then um I think it was probably from that podcast. Uh, I heard uh, that this guy named Teos Abadia, who I knew from back in the day on the mail, the Dark Sun mailing list, um, was going to write, uh, was going to be an administrator for Ashes of Athos. And um, that was going to be a organized play campaign for fourth edition Dark Sun that was not written by Wizards of the Coast. Um, it was written by what is now known as Baldman Games. Baldman Games is uh, the people that basically run conventions for Wizards of the Coast, or, you know, um, run the tables and things like that. And Teos was a member of that. And so he got a couple other um, people together to be the admins of it. And um, as soon as I saw that, I started reaching out to Teos and saying like, hey, how can I be involved? And, uh, you know, I started kind of editing, editing some of the content. And then after I edited a few, I was like, I'd love to write a few. So I wrote a few of them as well. And so that really got me back into into the game. And and right about that time also, I had so previously I had been um, my my sort of day job had been um, wilderness therapy um, instructor. And so I lived like in the middle of nowhere in the deserts uh, with these kids. Um, but then I wanted to come back like to the city because I was getting tired of living in in the middle of nowhere. I did that for several years. And so uh, came back to, you know, uh, at that time living in Denver, uh, because I wanted to practice martial arts, Aikido, I practice Aikido a lot. And so I was practicing it there um, and living there. And, you know, when I started writing and running these Dark Sun adventures, I also started getting into going to conventions a lot, organizing and doing all these things. You know, I started to get into sort of like the wider social media sphere of, of role-playing games and of D&D specifically. And, um, and so after, after writing and, 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 you know, really that was like 2009, 2010. Yeah. When like social media was getting really big, right? Like Facebook was coming out and uh, Twitter and all that stuff. And as I was getting super involved in that, because I didn't have, uh, I didn't have a job. I was like living at the dojo, just working there. It's called an Uchideshi. So I had a lot of free time when I wasn't practicing, even though I practiced for like six or eight hours a day, I still had plenty of time to do other things. And so uh, I started just look like looking up people and, you know, connecting with people. And one of those people was Tim Brown, who is one of the co-creators of Dark Sun. He was doing, he actually tried to buy Dark Sun from Wizards of the Coast, um, but they, you know, said no. And so he, he, something called uh, Dragon Kings. So this is sort of like after uh, when fourth edition was our, was kind of on its way down. And so he did a Kickstarter. And so I kept like messaging him. I'm like, hey, maybe you should, you know, say this on your Twitter, say that on your Twitter. And finally, he kept, you know, he was like, good idea, good idea. Then he was just like, hey, you want to do this for me? <laughs> and I was like, okay. So, so that's really what got me into sort of like social media, community management and marketing. Uh, and then from there, it sort of just like built little by little, uh, working with conventions, working with some board game cafes, working with uh, 
RPG, uh, I'm helping people with their Kickstarters. And then once I had a little bit of experience with that, then I saw an announcement uh, from Teos uh, that they were putting together, uh, that Wizards of the Coast was putting together a an organized play for fifth edition. And so that was like, you know, 2013, 2014, like whenever they were, that was starting. Um, and so I put my resume in there with, uh, you know, some good input from Teos because I had worked with him, some input from Tim Brown. And so I got that job. And so that's how I started being one of the six admins for... Um, for the D&D Adventures League. And I was the kind of the community manager. Gotcha. And at that time, and I suppose for the, your first couple of years, what did your job really... Uh... Um, <clears throat> so there were six of us community managers. And then we had like a liaison at Wizards of the Coast. And that was uh, Chris Tulak initially. And so we basically came up with the storyline that we were going to tell um, that was within each season of D&D. So like at that time... Just like <clears throat> at that time, D&D was only putting out like one book a year, I think. I think it was mm -hmm. maybe two, maybe two. Um, I think it was one. And so we we were like, OK, we're going to have one storyline over a year, right? This is going to be easy. We were given, uh, since everything was kind of like Forgotten Realms, we were given this place called the Moon Sea in the Forgotten Realms. And so mm -hmm. we were tasked with creating a you know basically i don't know 12 to 20 depending on the on the on the season um adventure kind of arc and then sub arcs within those um that take place in the moon sea and they mirrored what was happening in sort of the main D, D book that came out so the first one was uh uh what is it rise of tiamat and horde of the dragon queen Mm -hmm. So that was like the first season. And so we use those same elements, like how does the rise of Tiamat affect the moon sea? And so we created our own NPCs and created a bunch of storylines. And so, uh, so while I had a lot of say in some of that, you know, mostly the other, uh, the other admins who were hired for those specific positions, like the resource manager and uh, the story person, I can't remember what, what their title was, um, but it was Bill Benham and um, Travis Goodall and, and some others. Um, and so, so they uh or travis woodle um and claire and and alan and yeah greg so uh, we all sort of had input they kind of you know came up with the the details of the storylines and then they got writers to write them and and what i was responsible was you know at the time for, for whatever reason they didn't really want to give us a website but luckily alan Alan worked at some web company and so uh, he got us a website. So we kind of put a, a website together and I pretty much managed that. Um, and then I created uh, a bunch of groups like Facebook groups. So we had like a group for players, we had a group for dungeon masters. Uh, we had groups for writers. And so uh, I was responsible for basically just kind of, you know, taking the temperature of, of the community, getting people involved in the community and, um, helping people start running games at stores. Um, and then also, because I was so involved in the internet, you know, back back in the day, it used to be that you could only run these games either at conventions or stores, and like that was it. But then online play kind of started to be a thing. And so uh, I really pushed for online play. And so that was a huge game changer because, because a lot of people don't live in cities. A lot of people don't live near a game store. And so opening that up was was huge like I, we we grew so big like our facebook group was like i can't even remember 80 100,000 people which was big at the time and so it became it became crazy my wife hated it because i was just like constantly getting pinged on facebook and and dealing with it and and uh 
<laughs> yeah, it was a crazy time, but it was awesome. I, I really loved, loved doing that. Tell me about being a Facebook uh, admin. I believe you still do that for the uh, D&D 5e community, right? Yeah, so, um, so Michael Long, who was, so back then we had what were called like uh, local coordinators. And so they were people, so we had regional coordinators and they um, they were for like the North America, South America, whatever. And then under those regional coordinators, they had local coordinators. And so this is how it like disseminated information to, uh, to game stores and things like that. And uh, one of those local coordinators was Michael Long and he started uh, the D&D 5th edition group and might have had a different name at the time. I can't remember. But he asked if I wanted to help admin it. And I was like, sure. So I joined that. And at the time, at that time, I was... Like that was sort of secondary. I, I was just sort of there adminning, not or modding, you know, not super, super involved. Um, and then as we, but as we grew, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 people, like it became bigger than the D&D Adventures League groups. Um, and so with that many people, uh, you know, modding can um, can take a bit of time. So we we added more mods. And then since we have so many mods, then somebody needs to be, you know, an admin for the group. And so Michael asked me to be an admin. We have we had a couple admins. We've always had like two or three or four, depending. Um, and then we've had from, you know, probably upwards of like 16 or 18 mods at a time. And so a lot of it used to be, you know, we, we sort of had to go through the growing pains of like, what does it mean to mod a group of that size? Because there had never been anything that big um for the um for rpgs and so we kind of learn you know like you're gonna have people that are just you know griefers and everything else you know the, the, all those kinds of things and so we ended up with um with sort of a um a reputation of you know of being more left-wing because we all really were and and we didn't deal with like if somebody was going to be a jerk or somebody was going to be uh transphobic or whatever we're like too bad you're just gone that doesn't like we're not even going to discuss it because it just it would happen enough we realized that giving warnings doesn't affect anything you're just gone so now you read these rules and if you read these rules it says this is what you're doing and if you break these rules you're gone and and just makes it makes everybody's life easier yeah i can i can see why like if um especially if like you have rule skirters or anything like that mm -hmm. that can just mm -hmm. be such a headache and it's such yeah. a massive group Right. That like, what do you, the ensuing drama of someone rule skirting or like saying something that's inappropriate and then like only giving them a warning, like that's so much additional work. Yeah. It's so much work. Yeah. Especially for such a large group where you have like thousands of posts a day. Like we had to turn on post approval for a while and it's, I think it's still on. Uh, but now Facebook has so many better, um, better tools, although they're not still great. I feel like they could be better. Um, but I mean, it used to be really hard to sort of approve people. Like, you know, there's just a lot of work that goes into, into all of that, especially when you have such a big group. So you have so many hundreds of people trying to join a day and you have so many posts per day. And like, uh, how many, how many hours was this taking away from your, your life? Probably which... too many. Again, yeah. my wife hated it at the time. Um, uh, yeah, just, just too many really. <laughs> but at the time I, I, you know, it made me visible. It made me more visible in the community. And so both with the D&D Adventures League stuff, which is, was only a very part-time job. <laughs> like, so it's not like I was getting paid a bunch for that. Mm -hmm. um, but that also made me visible in the community. And so, so that got me freelance writing gigs and got me more Kickstarter, uh, you know, promotional work with people. And so I sort of made my living. And at that time also, you know, I, my wife uh, had just had our second kid. And so uh, she was kind of moving away from her job, which was full-time. And then I was becoming sort of the sole income since she was taking care of the kids. And so, um, so all of that, the reason I kept doing it is just because it, it helped me be 
more visible. I'm sure that's a, uh, that's honestly like uh, 90% of like, how do I get, how do I break into this? Um, top of mind, just be known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, right? there's, yeah, yeah. there's so many people out there, especially in the creative space, that if you're looking to collaborate, a lot of what gets you in the door is just like, do I know Robert? Do I like Robert? If mm-hmm. yes to those two things, okay, Robert's on the pro- mm-hmm. Robert's on the project. And that's how I yeah, feel so like most it's, of those Yeah, so it's interesting. Like I look at people like on Facebook or on Twitter and, you know, uh, like a lot of people I follow, like are you know really good designers or whatever and then i look at them and they have like 200 followers and like i look at at mine and it's like you know whatever i am now like five or six thousand that i've kind of been hovering around for a while and then like i think it was last year or two years ago whatever i got a thing from twitter saying like congratulations you're in like the top five percent of twitter users to have this many followers i was like wow that's crazy you know like it's 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 interesting and uh yeah you know, kind of from then, uh, like that was sort of like my height of being known. Uh, you know, we were, I don't know, we were somewhere uh, with my family and, and somebody recognized me and they're like, people know you? And I was like, well, it's a very small, specific percentage of people that know me. But yeah, some people yeah. know me. Yeah, I, I had such a similar thing happen, but it's like people were like at Gen Con, they were like, hey, Friday from Twitter. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just like, I, yeah, I guess that's how people know me. It's like, yep, yep. they know me as the the freelancing GM on uh, mm-hmm. on Twitter that talks about D&D or whatever. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that is that is kind of funny when people recognize you. And um, mm-hmm. uh, I can I can do without the I don't necessarily like uh, want the kind of attention that some of the actual play people get for sure. Yeah. Cause that, that can be, mm-hmm. that can, that's probably really draining. Um, yeah, it seemed like, but yeah, people recognizing me and then having industry conversations, it'd be nice though. I always mm-hmm. like that when people For come sure. up to me and they're like, Hey, I uh, see that you are doing this thing. I mm-hmm. am doing this other thing that is like this. And I love to have totally. conversations like that. Uh, mm-hmm. That's always really interesting. But um, have you been uh, attending um, uh, conventions lately or did you stop around the pandemic or what's that like? For uh, you? So basically when, um, when I stopped doing the adventures league, uh, that's kind of when I stopped going to conventions. I just mm-hmm. didn't few people in this industry make a full-time living, even fewer people in this industry industry can be the sole provider for their family yeah and 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 if i'm honest you know i really wasn't making enough to be the sole provider like we after adventures league i i like what would happen during adventures league is conventions would fly us out so we part of the adventures league is we had these things called admin or author only adventures either people at wizards of the coast or the admins of the adventures league could write um, these specific adventures and nobody else could run them, right? They're like official adventures, but we're the only people could, that could run them. And mm-hmm. as a result of that, conventions would fly us out to them. So they'd put us up and all that stuff. So that's the only way I was really able to travel and, and go to so many conventions. I mean, I was going to like one or two conventions a month at least uh, for those kind of for the back um and then I think in 2016, so previous to that also, every time we wrote an adventure, Wizards would pay us like 500 bucks to write the adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when 2016 came around and the Dungeon Masters Guild came out, um, <clears throat> what they started doing was, well, for a while, one of the super cool things that Wizards did that really made me love them, they could have put all of those adventures that we had written. So there was, I don't know, three or four seasons, maybe three seasons by that time. 
they could have put all those up there and you know they would have been 499 or whatever but all that money could have gone to them because when we when you sign your contract to write an adventure you're basically doing it as work for hire but what they did instead is they put that they put those adventures up there at even a higher rate anybody else has so normally you know you get 50 percent um, we were getting 60 percent, and so they gave that to us like they didn't have to do that from everything that i wrote during those years like i still get residual money like it used to be like you know between 800 and a thousand dollars a month now it's kind of lowered you know three or four hundred dollars a month but it's awesome right like i haven't written yeah. anything to go up there uh for years and so um yeah. so i really appreciated that and so after oh so let me kind of take a step back so you know they would get us to those conventions they would fly us out there the convention would and we would run the games one of the, my clients that i started working for was fantasy grounds so fantasy grounds is a virtual tabletop they were the first virtual tabletop to get a DD license and so I started pushing, so this was in like 2016. I started pushing to for this idea that like, okay, people can play online now. People can play Adventures League online. We didn't really have a way to run our author-only adventures for people that were not going to these conventions, right? And again, trying to be sort of fair to everybody, not everybody can go to conventions. It costs money. Even if they're in your own city, they cost money. But what up? Again, what about all these people that don't live near a city, that don't live anywhere near a convention? And so I, I convinced them to allow us, uh, and which was pretty much primarily me because nobody else really, none of the other admins did uh, online play, uh, but to be able to play um, online. So I was like a paid GM in like 2016 or whatever that was. Um, and so we started, you know, I started doing that and started running a Patreon and getting a ton of people. Uh, there wasn't really a, you know, there was no start playing games. There was no anything like that um, at that time. And so I, um, uh, that was again, another source of income that I had for, uh, for quite a while. That was nice. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. I can't remember yeah. what it was now. No, it was, we started with talking about conventions, so that's good. Oh, right. okay. And we're segueing beautifully into uh, professional GMing. Yeah. And so that was, I suppose, then professional GMing for you started with Adventures League. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about you moving to professional GMing online then and how that was and when you started. And like, I assume it was you just advertising via like email and message boards and things like that and starting getting your start that way. Can you well, walk so that me was, through that? Yeah, so that I, I was very lucky. Um compared to other professional DMs, especially now is like, again, I had a built in audience, like all these people knew me from Adventures League. And I was running these author only adventures that only I could run, I had a very good pipeline of people coming in. And so I set up a Patreon, you know, started putting people on there. And at that time, the only place I could really advertise was Adventures League, because at that time, if you posted a uh, anything about paid GMing, like you were just dogpiled on about how you're ruining the hobby and, you know, all of these complaints um, uh, of a lot of people, because, you know, up until then, most people were, you know, do you just play with your friends or whatever? And so people just didn't have the idea that you, this could be a job for most people, I should say, you know, I've since then, you know, I've heard tons of stories of people that, um, you know, have been kind of professional GMing locally since, you know, since the 80s or whatever, that really allowed me to, um, uh, to run games. And so started doing that, you know, that's when I think I got discord as well. So I made a discord. And so all those people started being um, uh, playing in there. And so uh, I, I just ran tons of games. Uh, and then even when I had left Adventures League, they still told me like I could continue to run my author only adventures uh, through like another year. So I did. Uh, um, also during that time, maybe a little bit later, uh, Devin, um, Devin Chulik, 
reached out to me to kind of help him with an adventure he was writing. I don't think anything ever actually ended up coming of that adventure, but what came up of it was the relationship. When Devin and Nate, um, you know, had the idea of start playing games, I think I was the first person that they reached out to and said like, hey, if we are making this product, like what would you want in it? And so um, a lot of the features that we have are, are, are from, you know, my direct input of that. Super cool. Uh, so for you and running pro games now, how many are you running a week now? And, um, you know, what's how many players do you have? And like, where are you getting most of your audience and so on and so forth? Yeah. So, you know, again, to go back when I was running a lot of author only stuff, I had a huge stable of players. Um, mm -hmm. And so because I was running several of those a week, I was also running the kind of main, you know, storylines, uh, you know, Waterdeep, Dragon Heist and all of these. And, and so and then I also had several Darkson uh, games. So at one point, I, I was doing more pro jamming than than marketing stuff. And so like, you know, it was, you know, it was paying for most, you know, most of our living at the time, um, along with, the, again, the residuals from from DMs Guild and things like that. So I don't know, I probably at my height, I was probably running, I don't know, five or six games a week. I no longer run at that level. Um, because it was just it was exhausting. While I love, you know, I love running games. And, and a lot of it was sort of pre prepackaged stuff, because I, you know, I was running the same adventures over and over um, for my author only stuff, although I had a number of them. But um, it just was still like trying to have a family and trying, you know, it was just just too much like creative drain. And, yeah. um, and so I have just kind of I've slowed down right now. I've only got uh, kind of two, two, uh, two games that I run each a couple times a week, or sorry, a couple times a month. Um, and then I run, run a bunch of playtest stuff for the group. So like, everybody that's ever joined one of my games um, is still in my discord. And so you know, I, you know, post stuff like, hey, you want to, if you want to play, we're gonna play this game on this day and people that join, you know, we have a game. Uh, as much as I love it, and even when uh, I kind of got, uh, you know, I've not had a job or whatever, I've sort of tried to, you know, do a little bit more, but it's never, I don't know, it's just not, not as appealing to me as it, as it once was. I totally get that. Uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> moving out of 2022 and like me being full-time, I'm just like, okay, mm -hmm. so 2023 is where I exit, right? That's my, <laughs> that's yeah. my exit strategy for uh, <laughs> running this video games. But mm -hmm. um, I think uh, something like pro GMing is oftentimes much better for most people, especially if you have a family, like you said, uh, much better as a part-time gig, mm -hmm. as an additional bit of income, as mm -hmm. like a supplementary thing, because with the way that the uh, business swings, especially with holidays and stuff like that, yeah. Um, yeah. and like sometimes you have a table fall apart through no fault of your own, mm -hmm. um, and you know, that taking a two or $300 hit a week when you are depending on that income is right. devastating. Yeah. However, when it's only part-time income and it's like an additional bit that you use for savings or whatever, mm -hmm. then it's not so bad. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, totally. I feel like depending on like the freelancing market, just like any freelancing thing is like always so stressful. So um, I'm happy that you're not full time anymore <laughs> because I know, <laughs> so you know, that's it's it's so much additional stress mm -hmm. um, for you and like maintaining like uh, your community. Uh, that you interact with um, you only offer like a couple of games you said are they both dark yeah. sun or what uh no one's dark sun and uh the other one so actually my longest my my longest uh contributing patron uh who i've had from like i don't know if it was the week i started but really close to when i started 
running pro GMs again in like 2015, 20, uh, probably 2016. He's been my patron since then. And so he is, uh, you know, he has kind of directed several of my campaigns just because he's the one that's always there. And he's like, oh, I want to play this or that. So it's always been Forgotten Realm stuff, but you know, we've run Waterdeep Dragon Heist and, and uh, through, we did the entire uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage. And then after that, we were like, well, what do we want to do? So I started running a Planescape game. Um, so I did Planescape 5th edition. And then I had another group that uh, they were like all new players. Well, not completely new, but they played in high school. So they were a small group uh, that wanted to get back together. And we started running Ispire Peak. And then I had, you know, some people join here and there. And then some people left. So I had these kind of two groups that only had like a few players. So I sort of mashed the Planescape group with the Ispire Peak group. And they were in um, they were in Forgotten Realms for a while. And now they're moving kind of back into the into Planescape. So I've got that game going on. And then I've got um, a Dark Sun game. And the Dark Sun game, this incarnation of it. So I uh, previously I ran a game that was what's called the Brown Age. So like before the current age. Um, and so uh, I ran that. So it was like a couple hundred, you know, several hundred years in the past, sort of. Uh, and then one of my friends, uh, Walter Bass, passed. And Walter Bass, I was very lucky to know him. At one point, I was also like buying and selling used RPG books. Um, and so I was at a convention selling these used RPG books in Denver. And a guy is like looking at the Dark Sun stuff. And I was like, is there anything I can help you with? And he's like, uh, he's like, uh, yeah, I'm just looking for a book to see if you have uh, City State of Tear. And I was like, uh, I was like, I don't know if we have that book, but it's just, you know, super good book, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, I wrote it. And I was like, holy shit. So started talking to him, became friends with him. And um, unfortunately, he passed from throat cancer uh, a couple of years ago. And so after that, it was kind of like right around the time when I was finishing that other game, I was like, I'm going to run a City City of Tear game, you know, kind of in memoriam of, of Walter Bass. And so a couple of my friends that had, that knew him personally also kind of played in that game. And 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 we've kind of gone from, you know, third edition to now, or, or not third edition, th- uh, third level, or maybe even first level, can't remember, we started. Uh, and now they're like 12th level. And uh, they have kind of I've used almost everything from City State of Tear, the book, uh, in honor of him. He's also made a lot of the RPG, or a lot of the monsters for Dark Sun, so I try to use those too. Well, that's wonderful to hear about. And I always love uh, meeting people whom I've read their work, and mm-hmm. you know, it's I know it's personally like really gratifying uh, as a writer to have someone read your work and like just be a fan of it and just to have that conversation and be like, what did you appreciate? What did you like? And how did you use that in your game? And so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. That's always really cool. Have you had? experiences like that as a writer for fourth edition or uh from fourth edition well yeah i mean yeah over from every the stuff edition oh yeah for sure i mean knowing uh, you know i know tim brown uh you know he, the co-creator of dark sun we talk all the time i've worked with him at ulysses spila uh mm. you know we work together he's got a new project that he's starting to get together that i've been working with him on so like yeah it's been you know it's awesome um to know all of these uh, you know all these designers they're such interesting people uh one of my buddies wayne he actually he asked me he's like hey you want to start a podcast this is in like 2017 dark sun podcast and i was like sure so we started doing that and one of my great regrets is that so so we started running the podcast and you know at first we were just sort of talking about dark sun stuff and then we were like i was like well hey i know tim <laughs> like let's get him on here so got him on there got troy on there you know troy denning uh and so like we've had a lot of people and and i had sort of at that time lost touch with walter uh just because like i'd moved um to, to arizona and and just sort of lost touch with him and then by the time i was like oh hey we should get walter on here had already gotten throat cancer and really couldn't talk and so i was 
so bad that like I did not reach out to him before then. But um, but doing the podcast has been amazing. Uh, I, I've got to speak with you know so many so many authors that have written for Dark Sun. Almost every like all, pretty much everybody that's kind of written an actual book. I think we've spoken to uh, actually. Now I take that. I gotta I, I gotta get a hold of uh, Richard Baker. He's he's the only one that I really haven't spoken to. And then Brom, we haven't gotten Brom to come on. Although I haven't asked him either. But we've gotten back, so I've gotten you know just tons of tons of cool people. Bill Slavicek, everybody. That's been it's been awesome. Yeah, uh, talking with Brom, that would be. I don't <laughs> think I've I don't think I've ever even heard of an interview with Brom before. I wonder if they would come on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've emailed him a couple times over the years, but yeah. he you know he he's such an amazing artist that yeah. like you know he's outgrown D D. Yeah. Uh, and like you know i'm sure he gets paid bajillions of dollars for his his artwork you know and and so you know i, I mean i've asked him t- tim has asked him tim tim got uh one of his pictures or one of his pictures one of his uh, pieces of art that he he had done as a commission for somebody else that kind of looked like uh you know a, a, a dragon um the, sort of a dark sun dragon and so he used that for his cover of dragon king's pseudo dark sun book that he ended up putting out very cool yeah did you think for a second what am i what sense am i trying to form in my head <laughs> have you thought about uh so you have the uh bone stone and obsidian podcast mm-hmm. uh link will be in the description as far as uh doing a different sort of podcast have you looked at branching out in that and do you still use your email list for marking purposes or anything like that to tell people like what you're doing lately oh like the old dark sun email list yeah so that wasn't mine that was actually wizards of the coast well it oh, was okay. a company called mpgn and then when Wizards bought it, they took it. Uh, and then they uh, they actually destroyed all of those files. But luckily, some people kept them, and you can find them on like archive and things like that. Uh, right. So it's great to kind of like go through some of those old old emails. But um, so no, I don't I don't really have an email list. Um, but there are you know Dark Sun Facebook groups. There's there's two of them. There's uh, which one of them which I own, and you know I'm the admin. There's the it's called Dark Sun Athis facebook page there's a dark sun reddit there's a dark sun discord uh and so i'm in all those places you know talking to everybody about dark sun and so you know even though i had given athis.org to flip uh who again was one of the uh um you know one of the old school guys um when i came back in like 2009 he was like uh he was like oh yeah let you know do do whatever you want so i kind of came back and uh you know, we did a few fourth edition products, but what sort of happened was with third edition, because it was such a, uh, you know, so detailed, so many things, it took, it took them forever, sort of like the third edition Dark Sun. And, and there's not even officially a, a, a finished version. It's been in beta or like a revised version. And so even though it's all there, it's just not like, you know, an official release. Uh, but one of the cool things that they did, um, that Wizards allowed us to do they gave us two unfinished Dark Sun products. And so, you know, the, the line ended in 1995 and then they, they had these products. And so when we became the, uh, you know, the official Dark Sun website, they gave us these two products. And one is called the Deadlands and then one is called the Emissary. And so in, in the revised Dark Sun book, the Deadlands is like mentioned and it's, uh, sorry, campaign setting. Uh, it's mentioned, it's at the bottom of the, of the world map and it's like this big obsidian plane. And so book that Tim had kind of started to write already was given to us in the emissary, which is an adventure to go down there. <laughs> I don't know if it was just the guys that were, you know, working on it. it. They were just so verbose. Like there's so much written. They, they, they delved into the the history of dark sun and created a bunch of content so much. And, 
over the years, for whatever reason, those didn't get finished. But we we they put out a ton of a uh, ton of other stuff. So if you go to athis.org and look under products of athis.org products, there's I think there's like twelve or twenty now. But so the you know those two adventures have kind of languished until uh you know I I never wanted to continue to work on them. Um, but I've still been posting things here and there over the years. But what happened was this guy Jack he started kind of reaching out to some of the people that were involved with those, and like he got copies of them, and and then he ended up reaching out to me and I'm like, Hey, if you're going to do this, like, let's just do it. Like you can do it. Here's all the stuff. Kind of gave him everything I had. Um, which <laughs> at one point living, like I, I didn't have a home. I wasn't homeless. I was just working at, you know, uh, these wilderness therapy places. And so I just brought my like hard drive with me and a laptop, but it had all my stuff on it uh, and it got stolen, which sucked. So all my digital D and D stuff from, you know, back in the nineties was, was gone. But luckily a lot of dark sun people are uh, completionists. And so they had a bunch of that stuff. So I got it all back, gave it to, um, gave it to Jack. Who's called new Jack on uh, discord and Reddit and whatever. Uh, and so anyways, he started getting more people and more people. And so he's now created this thing called the priest pristine tower dev group. And so the pristine tower is tower in dark sun. Uh, and they, uh, at that tower, there's like mutations and weird stuff that happens off. So that's why they named it this. He has gotten a bunch of people together, um, a bunch of fans, and they have finished the emissary. They have finished the, uh, the deadlands. And now we're like working on other projects. And so uh, it's pretty much through his own force of will um, to really gather the community back together and start uh, writing stuff. So that's been, it's been awesome in the last kind of a uh, couple of years. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, I'm looking at it right now. I didn't, I didn't realize this was on there, but um, I see that you have like a lot of these uh, supplements and these offerings for the setting, like available mm -hmm. on anthos.org. And that yeah. is super cool. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, they, uh, since Spelljammer came out recently, they put together a quick Spelljammer thing. So there's the Crimson Sphere. So if you like Spelljammer and you want to master Spelljammer and Dark Sun, you could do that there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's super cool. Okay. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention or bring up or uh, chat about briefly before we close out here? Well, I don't know if it's briefly, but uh, there's been a lot of upheaval uh, in, in, in the community as of late with the whole OGL thing. And it's interesting to see... Uh, kind of like I was talking about before, you know, I have made my living on D and D for this past 10 years. Uh, and so, uh, I was recently laid off. I, I had worked for 2C Gaming for a while. And so I was recently laid off from there in November. And then they they laid off the rest of their team as well. And that was like right before all the OGL kind of stuff hit. Um, but that has all had the effect of like putting a kind of cooling effect on the whole industry. And so like I haven't had a job for a couple of months. So I'm kind of moving back into like the freelance uh, area, both writing and, uh, you know, community management, social media, marketing. So if anybody has any, uh, any, anything they need done, definitely reach out to me. But it's been interesting, uh, you know, looking in the Facebook groups. So I, I also started a 1D&D Facebook group a while ago when that was first announced. And so it's really interesting seeing like everybody's different perspectives on like, what does the OGL mean to them? You know, like some people are like, I have no idea what's going on. Other people are like, who cares? Like, it's just going to be, you know, content, whatever. Like, so it's just been it's interesting to see everybody's perspective on on what that means and what it means for the industry. Um, because people like me that are obviously super involved in it, it means it means a lot. And if uh, even even if you know they they come out with something much more amenable uh, to us and the old OGL 
I feel like a lot of people are are kind of moving away from D&D to other games. Like I know, not that I'm not ever going to write for D&D again or anything like that, but I want to run more and write more for Schwab Entertainment. Uh, he's, his uh, Shadow of the Weird Wizard is about to come out, uh, is about to be kickstarted in April. And so we've been playtesting that and that's been amazing. I really love that game. Like if you like D&D and you've ever played the uh, the Warhammer fantasy role-playing game because he wrote for that too a uh, weird wizard is sort of like a combination of DD and warhammer fantasy role-play yeah yeah and a lot of people are indeed like moving away from DD with the ogl split um and everyone i suppose kind of understanding you know fifth edition is soon coming to an end right mm -hmm. and especially with the way some things are worded on the ogl uh someone making uh, residuals or making enough to be uh worth the cost opportunity of actually writing for DD that third party uh, freelancer mm -hmm. is sort of drying up that works drying up so a lot of people are going in different directions right um, and i think it's you know so being a marketing person obviously the the situation is just amazing like i've never seen such a marketing blunder in in the history of of, of games besides that like like i said i just i'd recently gotten off laid off from 2c gaming i was the first person to get laid off and i knew like i knew that was a threat because you know they were a small company and so i was the only person that didn't didn't have anything to do specifically with creating the content right we had mm -hmm. an editor we had an art director and also artists and, and writers and things like that but i was the only person that wasn't going to be um directly responsible for creating creating content so therefore i was the most expendable mm -hmm. so i got laid off and and that's going to be the case everywhere right like people can do their own social media people can do their own marketing and so a marketing or social media person is often seen as sort of uh expendable but also like the last person they're going to hire and so like even if people don't do it necessarily well they can still do it themselves and so my position is you know especially vulnerable and if wizards comes to the point where uh people are hiring less you know i'm probably not going you know i need to find something else to do or something you know for the moment at least so yeah um yeah i've definitely been in that position to where uh you know marketing is considered secondary and then they look at their sales and they're like why didn't we do well here and it's <laughs> right. like well well you did did you have a marketer did you mm -hmm. have someone focused on that i know for a lot of uh corporations it's almost if not more than 50 percent of their budget a lot of the time is like you need marketing to be able to reach the audience that you want because you could design the best game in the world if people don't know about it then it's the best game in the world that nobody's played yeah and so one of the things i will just shout out there for anybody that's listening uh if you are running a kickstarter kickstarter is one of those things that people don't want to spend money on right people think that they can just go there make their thing and they're going to get money like you said, marketing can be 50% of your costs. Now, when you start thinking about that, what does that really mean? It's not 50% of your goal, of course, 50% of your costs. Uh, and that, what that, how that usually ends up breaking out is if you're running a Kickstarter, you should plan to spend 10 to 20% of your goal, preferably 20% of your goal of what you actually think you're going to make, not necessarily your goal, because a lot of people put lower goal. And then, you know, if you expect your Kickstarter is going to make $40,000, you should spend from four to $8,000 on marketing. That's not all just ads and things like that. That could be, you know, your, your, uh, what it costs to actually put the Kickstarter together, like the, you know, uh, getting the images made and getting your video and all that stuff. Um, but also, you know, influencer stuff and ads, you know, all of that stuff. And so I think most people don't 
I don't think about that out-of-pocket cost, right? That's four to eight thousand dollars that they need to have to make the, you know, to make their forty thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah, it some, you know, that that old adage: it takes money. You got to spend money to make money. <laughs> yep, yep. It's unfortunately, uh, uh, true because like unless you're leveraging like a giant email list or you have built mm-hmm. up, yep, um, exactly your marketing marketing foothold as like an influencer or something like that, and you have an audience that you're mm-hmm. reaching already, and, and unless you get really lucky, you're going to need to uh, invest in marketing because it's really the difference between making goal and not for a majority of these people is like just awareness, creating Mm -hmm. market awareness and starting your campaign nine to 12 months out instead of a couple of weeks before you launch. So I'm going to spill some tea here, Uh, not specifically, but I have worked for several you know, um, several publishers, very rarely were they able to plan out a marketing plan for their Kickstarter, uh, you know, three months ahead of time, let alone a year. As a marketer, I want to plan a year ahead of time for things like that. But very, very rarely, I honestly, I I think never, I think the farthest I've ever planned something out six to nine months. Uh, And so, so many you know, publishers are are just sort of running by the skin of their teeth. Yeah, it's definitely not. Uh, if you have the money to do it, being a little more intentional with your planning, I think getting out there as soon as possible is is mm-hmm. better than not. Mm-hmm. I when I get brought on board a team to do some marketing for a product or anything, what ends up happening is like I can't make stuff happen right away. So if like you bring me on board right before you launch, like basically what's going to happen is like I can set some stuff up from you for you in like five to nine months mm-hmm. because like when you reach out and you're trying to get market penetration and you're trying to deal with people who can actually reach the audience that you're intending to, mm-hmm. uh, they're booked up. Yeah. So yep. you gotta, you gotta, if, especially with influencer marketing and things like that, mm-hmm. um, running ads, if you run, if you learn to run ads and like four hour course or whatever that you can take and you just, um, you hire a designer to adjust your ads to Mm -hmm. make sense for you over time to see how you're spending until you break even and you make more on your PPCs, um, your paper clicks for our audience. That stuff is all like, you could just have anybody probably do that a little bit. Um, But like, if you're talking about like grand strategy and you're talking about like over time, what you want to do and these Mm -hmm. type of connections that you want to make over time to secure these deals that are going to make a huge difference and speak to the audience that you need to speak to in order to sell the most copies. Uh, that takes a while. Yeah. And if you're trying to like get on podcasts or have somebody do an actual play or all of these things, yeah, that, it takes months to get that stuff going. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, if you want to check out Robert, we do have uh, links in the description uh, of all the places you can find them and their work. Hi, thanks for listening. If you want to support me, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash is Friday, or you can find some of the work that I'm doing at vineyardrpg.com if you want to pre-order the book that we made. Thanks!